Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about learning to live a little slower in a fast-paced world. My name is Brooke McCallery. Thank you very much for joining us. And my name is Ben McCallery and welcome to episode 179, where you speak to the lovely Linda Esposito. I do. So Linda and I spoke on the podcast back in November of 2015. So way back in episode 35. Good remembering. I know, just off the top of my head. I have a photographic memory when it comes to podcast episodes. So it was about time you had her back on. It was. So Linda is a psychotherapist who, she does a lot of work online uh, and she's the founder of an organization, a website rather, called Wired for Happy. Uh, She's just fantastic. Linda's a great person to follow on Instagram, social media. She writes a lot obviously about mental health and happiness, uh, anxiety, and as a practicing therapist as well, she talks about a lot of the strategies that she works with her clients on uh, in terms of you know mental health and, and contentment and strategies. What I really like about Linda is that she's practical and not afraid to talk about the uncomfortable things uh, publicly. I mean, obviously, she's not talking about specific case studies, but uh, Linda's just, she's awesome. Plus, she said nice things about my voice, which made me feel good. Oh, that's lovely. (laughs) It is, because I have such a complex about my voice. So how does this conversation differ to your last one? It doesn't. It's exactly the same. Oh, okay. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Sorry. So in this one, Linda and I talk a lot about the concept of mindfulness. And I knew that her take on mindfulness would be very interesting given her work as a psychotherapist. But also she's posted a lot on uh, social media recently about how she thinks that we overcomplicate mindfulness. And um, I have some thoughts that, you know, I've probably covered a little bit in in previous episodes about much the same. And so we, we speak about how her clients are encouraged to adopt mindfulness and why so many people find themselves trying to to live more mindfully or they're they're doing these strategies, you know, using these strategies to live mindfully and they find themselves more uncomfortable or more aware of their emotional discomfort than before. So Linda and I talk about why that is and what we can do to, to help that not be the case. But she also talks about, you know, in a related sense, boredom and how we feel entitled to not be bored as adults oh. and how that ties back into mindfulness as well, which I thought was really interesting. And you know, towards the end of the conversation, we do talk about what she and I both perceive to be a big problem with mindfulness, current iteration of mindfulness anyway, and how it's sort of been commoditized and stripped of its nuances and it's just become this, this new um, you know, top five ways of kind of way of living, which doesn't defeat the purpose, but it certainly does, I guess, stop us from looking at it from all angles. It changes the structure of it really, doesn't it? Yeah. And it changes the outcome and it changes people's expectations of it too. I mean, like nothing is a one size fits all solution. And I think the problem when, when something like mindfulness is shopped around as the one size fits all solution is that people's expectations are very different and kind of expect it to just happen and happen instantly or obviously. Whereas my experience and Linda and I talk about, you know, the experiences of herself and her clients, that's not the case. It takes time and it takes a persistence like anything. 
So it's it was really interesting where we ended up with, with our chat today. Mm, good stuff. So if you want more information about this episode, head over to slowyourhome.com slash 179 for all the show notes to this episode. And you can check out Linda over at wiredforhappy.com. That's the best place to find everything she does. Before we get into the discussion, let's talk about Patreon and our live recordings. Yeah, so this is new. This is exciting. This is like two or three days away from from today, if you're listening to it on the day that this is released. But for all of our Patreon supporters, we've decided to start a monthly live video call. It's something that we, we, we want to do for you guys to say thank you and to give you an opportunity to sit down and ask us some questions that maybe we haven't answered on the podcast. We'll give you some like behind the scenes kind of look into what's happening with us and, and where we're at with life and there will almost certainly be stupid jokes <laughs> Ben might sing exactly it could be anything <laughs> and it is likely to be everything and anything so we are going to do this every month and we can't wait we've already sent the link out to existing patreon subscribers but if you're it's not too late if you want to subscribe via patreon and support us that way you'll have access to the link uh, we'll send an email out uh, about 24 hours before we do the, the live recording. So make sure to check your inboxes and we're looking forward to it. We are. I just want to say thank you to everyone who has supported us on Patreon. It means the world to us and it certainly goes a long way towards starting to cover some of the costs of putting together the show. And uh, we love you guys. So if you wanted to support us, head over to patreon.com slash slow and check it out. In the meantime, enjoy my conversation with Linda because she is a gem. Linda, welcome back. Thank you so much, Brooke. I'm so excited to be here again. Oh, I'm so delighted to talk to you. It's been like more than a year and a half since we spoke and that blows my mind. That's gone really quickly. It has. And and like I always say, I, I could listen to your voice and Ben's voice forever. It's so soothing. And whenever I hear your voices, I think, wow, if I could sound like that in therapy, I would be booked solid. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny to me because I've always had like a chip on my shoulder about my voice. Someone said to me once when I was a teenager, which, you know, they probably shouldn't have. Uh, oh, you sound, you're as tall as your dad and you sound like him too. <laughs> oh, great. So I just carried this around that I sound like a dude um, for the last 20 years. But anyway, <laughs> moving along. Thank you for your compliment. Um, you know, I want to dive straight into this because there's a question that I am asked a lot by people who listen to the podcast and have started to make changes to their life, uh, you know, living more mindfully, possibly practicing meditation or, you know, focusing on simplicity. And what they discover almost invariably is that while that helps them in a lot of ways, they also find themselves more aware of emotional discomfort or overwhelm uh, and becoming you know more aware of the rapidness of their thoughts and their life and as a result they feel more uncomfortable when what they're trying to do is feel 
you know, more at ease. Can you offer any insight as a, as a psychotherapist, can you offer any insight into why that might be? Yes. And it's, comes up a lot in the therapy room. In fact, if I had to pinpoint when my clients roll their their eyes, (laughs) it's when I mention mindfulness or deep breathing, or if I'm working with younger clients, I say brain breaks. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the issue sometimes is that, and partly because we have access to social media and computer 24-7, that we're not accustomed to quiet. Mm. We're not accustomed to not doing anything, whether that's because of the fear of missing out or because we're, we're so overscheduled. But I think that for a lot of people, they hear about mindfulness. And so there's kind of this innate pressure. Well, it works for other people and it's working across all these different industries. So I should try that. But I, I think that if people don't really understand the mechanics behind it, it can be somewhat of a challenge. And especially because for some people, it's a socially acceptable coping skill to be busy all the time. Mm -hmm. And that can also be avoidance of problems at home. That can be an unhealthy way of not dealing with the truth of Mm -hmm. your life. Mm. So then slowing down is really causing people to have to face those truths or those, you know, those, those things that they've been busying themselves out of paying attention to. Absolutely. And I've even had clients say to me, look, I'm not paying you to sit and listen to a meditation for 10 minutes. No offense, but this, that doesn't help me. That doesn't work for me. And I always think of the saying, and I, I can't remember the source, but it's something like everyone should meditate for 20 minutes a day. And if you don't have time, you should devote an hour. (laughs) And I think that that's, it's, there's a lot there. And again, I think some people are just uncomfortable with even closing their eyes. So for example, if I'm working with a client, I always let them know that we're going to be doing this meditation. This is a guided meditation. I use an app frequently called, um, calm.com. And it's really lovely because for people who aren't used to meditating or they're not used to the practice of mindfulness, all they have to do is listen. And I always let them know that if you don't feel comfortable closing your eyes, that's not a problem at all. Just have them downcast at your knees or whatnot, because honestly, for some people that is a very scary step. And then to close their eyes or even to have them gazing downward and have to listen to their thoughts can be very disturbing. And I think that that's an indication that mindfulness and meditation is something that could be implemented as a a coping tool, but sometimes it it is a tough sell. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly when, as you say, it's socially acceptable to be hectically busy Uh, but it's not necessarily socially acceptable to be someone who seems like they have time, you know, uh, there's still this attachment of weakness or mediocrity that comes with the territory of being someone who operates at a slower pace. And of course, I don't believe that, nor do I believe that all busyness is bad or anything is black and white as that. But, uh, I, yeah, that's really interesting. I think that, 
maybe the people who would benefit from it in a massive way are the, the same people who really struggle to understand the, the concept of it. So for someone who really is adamant that it's not going to work for them, but you maybe understand that if only you could get them to accept that it might, uh, that it will have an impact on them positively. How do you introduce the idea? So I'm specifically thinking of someone who's listening who maybe has a partner or a friend or a sibling who would absolutely benefit from mindfulness but doesn't want to hear about it. How could you encourage them to try it without feeling like you're you're trying to, I guess, you know, <laughs> convince them to sit down and meditate for an hour? Right, exactly. Because certainly if you try to, quote unquote, force someone to do something, that's going to send them running the other mm-hmm. way. So what what I do is, I mean, I guess I'm fortunate in the in the sense that I'm sitting in an office with someone and, and they're trapped for 50 <laughs> minutes. So, And, you know, certainly I don't want to make someone uncomfortable. However, the vast majority of people that come to me suffer from anxiety, whether that is social anxiety, a specific phobia, OCD, generalized anxiety or panic. I explained to them that the steps to calming down are basically the same. So I've already, before I introduced mindfulness, I've already done a lot of psychoeducation around how the anxious mind works, uh, the role of the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that is responsible for our fear response, also known as the fight, flight, or freeze response. Mm-hmm. So they at least have some kind of an idea of why I'm taking them down this road. But I explained to them that the beauty of mindfulness is that it helps us to pay attention to what we pay attention to, because oftentimes when we have uncomfortable thoughts, it's because we're living in two different modes. We're either living in the past or the future. So if we spend our time reliving and recreating the past, that leads to depression because the past is obviously gone and there's nothing we can do to change what happened. And then of course, living in the future is to live in fear, to oftentimes get caught up in catastrophic thinking. And usually by that time, people can kind of, I'll get some nods, they'll recognize themselves in that in that scenario. And I explained to them that it takes a lot of practice, that it's not something that most of us intuitively pick up right away, but it's, it's like anything. If you want to lose weight or if you want to have a healthier diet, it's, it's going to take time to habituate yourself to doing something differently. So I think that where most people tend to buy in is when I talk about the racing thoughts or the, the depressed thoughts. And because again, I work with anxiety predominantly, we spend a lot of time with the thought process and how it's common to think that your feelings are just your feelings and there's not really much that you can do. Mm -hmm. But really, if you look at what we call the cognitive behavioral triangle, it is that we have thoughts and that those thoughts lead to uncomfortable emotions, which then often lead to unhealthy coping skills. So the workaround is basically the same. So for example, with with anxiety and mindfulness, it's almost impossible to change the course of anxiety if people aren't aware of what their body's doing, if they're not aware of their fear response, if they're not aware of the physical triggers, which of course lead to thoughts that are very worrisome, and then that can exacerbate the 
physical symptoms, for example, increased heart rate or feeling a tightening of the chest or feeling closed in, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it's this vicious circle. And most people, they do recognize themselves in that scenario. And so I, you know, I, again, reinforce that mindfulness is above and beyond helping us to pay attention to what we pay attention to. And then when people start to practice mindfulness, they will kind of chart, oh yeah, so this is the trajectory of my thoughts. I do spend a lot of time before I walk in the door expecting to fight with my spouse. Or if I see my coworker walk in and she looks upset, I'll assume that she's upset Mm -hmm. that I didn't do something right. And so there's already this internal dialogue which is creating a scenario that may or may not happen. In fact, usually is not based in reality. I love that idea of, of um, you know, the way the, the triangle that you just sketched out and I could see it. And as you were describing it, I went back to myself, you know, six or seven years ago. And that was me without a shadow of a doubt. It was just this constant. And, and it took me a long time to realize that there was a physical element to the way that I was feeling. It wasn't just mental and emotional. There was a physical sensation. And for me, it was those physical sensations that were the first thing uh, that kind of, you know, set the alarm bells ring. I'd lay in bed and I'd feel the bed shaking, even though the bed wasn't shaking, you know, and I couldn't draw a full breath and all of those kinds of things. Uh, and I think that tapping into, and I've done some, some interviews with Kevin Jenks, a meditation practitioner, and he talks about tapping into the physical sensations as well. And and understanding that there is a physical sensation that accompanies uh, a particular emotion, but we don't need for those to be partners all the time, you know, and, and that's where for me meditation's been invaluable in, in, I guess, separating our thoughts from reality sometimes, you know, just because we think something doesn't make it true, uh, and then the right. behavioral patterns that follow that. And breaking that cycle has been life-changing, It is. And you bring up a really good point too, because one of the vexing characteristics of anxiety is, so you, there's a triggering event. You are worried about something that's going to a presentation at work or something, or a presentation that you have to give in front of a large audience. So that triggers worried thoughts, which then fires up the amygdala, which floods your body with adrenaline and physical sensations to fight, to uh, flee, or to freeze. And so often for people, what happens is the physical symptoms of anxiety, which are, you know, they can be different for for other people, but, you know, typically increased heart rate Mm. and difficulty breathing and tightening of the chest, maybe feeling like you're having a heart attack, et cetera. A lot of people will take that as proof of this, the reality of the thoughts that the bad thing really is going to happen. And so I think that that can be used hopefully in a, in a positive way to reinforce how important mindfulness is because that's going to take you to the first step, which is basically just paying attention to what you're paying attention to. That's your breathing. That's your body. And so when people start to see that connection, I think it does tend to make more sense because the physical sensations are real. Yeah, they're not imagined. That's right. The idea of paying attention to me is mindfulness. You know, I think that we tend to, and you posted about this on Instagram recently, which I found really interesting, we overcomplicate 
mindfulness or calm, you know, and, and the processes we can go through in order to achieve those things. Because for me, when I first started reading this word mindfulness, I thought, what I, I don't understand what it is to be mindful, but I did understand what it was to be mindless. And that's how I was living right. my life. You know, I was, I was simply not paying attention to most of what I was doing most of the day. And looking back, I mean, that, that makes me really sad. But it was that realization that, that, that mindfulness is simply the opposite of, of that, uh, that was quite liberating, I guess, because I thought I don't need to buy all those books about mindfulness. I don't need to attend the seminar about mindfulness. I just need to start paying attention. And for me, it started with like, ridiculously tiny things like flowers or ants, <laughs> you know, or dust motes uh, in, in the light. And it was just that learning to pay attention that shifted everything. And I think once you, uh, once you do that and sort of taking it away from the, the, the end of kind of anxiety or depression, just back to busyness and overwhelm, uh, it's that simple act of noticing that I think can turn any moment on its head. So do you encourage people to do really simple things like that as well? Absolutely. And sometimes people will have breakthroughs because they'll, they'll say, you know how you're always telling me to get out of my head? And I'm like, yeah. They're like, well, today I was at work and I was having lunch and I just noticed the sound of the paper bag opening or whatnot. And so I think, wow, that's a really good, not only step, but also it can be used as a healthy way of distracting yourself from, from rumination, from, from your thoughts. But going back to your comment about my, I guess, uh, comment <laughs> about, you know, oftentimes we complicate calm. We really do. And, and just as you just said, Brooke, about you don't need to buy all these mindfulness books or programs, et cetera. And, you know, I tell my therapy clients, I don't have people in therapy forever. And a lot of what I'm going to be, you know, working with you on is trying to get you to understand why you think the way you do, why you do what you do. And you will see that once you start to habituate yourself to doing things differently, and again, in the majority of my clients, it's to calm an anxious mind, that you're not going to need to come back here as long as you practice these steps. And so, you know, sometimes that can be a bit scary because people feel pressure like, well, well, I'm not getting it yet. So, I, I mean, I'm very aware of who I'm in the room with, but... Typically, you know, again, with anxiety, regardless of the anxiety type that you're suffering from, or, you know, even if you have anger issues or depression, or you're just fatigued or not feeling well, the typical ways to calm down the steps are one awareness that you're getting into a panicked or a heightened arousal state. And again, a lot of times that's by paying attention to what's happening with your body. And then it's about making a concerted effort to take a brain break, whether this is mindfulness, listening to a meditation, doing yoga, running, doing jumping jacks, but something to get you to calm down and to reset your physiological response to what's happening around you. And so I think what, where maybe a lot of the mindfulness information and even people in my industry where we, we don't really tie in 
The next step, which is the reason why we need to take deep breaths or brain breaks, however you want to call it, whatever works for you, is it prepares you for the next step, which is really crucial, and that is to examine your thoughts and to look at them in a more realistic light and not necessarily in a positive light because let's face it, sometimes situations there's really not much of a positive spin we can put on something. However, when we reframe our thoughts so that they're not catastrophic or they're not full of gloom and doom or based on something that's happened in the past, then we're able to have more of an informed decision-making or coping skills or actions that we can do to ameliorate the situation, to, if not solve the situation, to find a way to cope with the situation. And so it's doing those steps and then repeating them as often as necessary. And the goal is really to bore your central nervous system. <laughs> and it's, it's really the equivalent, I guess, of giving you white space, isn't it? You know, just space in which there is nothing but space because from there, that's where you can start to do that questioning and start to engage that curiosity and start to look at like the patterns of behaviors or the reasons that we do things. And just as you were speaking, I was thinking about my own experiences and my psychiatrist was the first person to encourage me to just sit and take 10 deep breaths for a minute and do nothing else to have no pressure to do anything else. It's not meditation. It's nothing other than sitting and having 10 deep breaths and paying attention to each of my senses. And what that did was get me out of my head for a minute and get me into the very present moment in the senses that were, you know, being engaged. And I didn't think that that would do anything, but what it does is, uh, you know, particularly as I did it time and time again, was give me that white space from which to make, I guess, make the connections and understand what I was doing and maybe why I was angry or why I was overwhelmed. Uh, do you think that, pardon me, do you think that white space is um, you know, is that, is that the, the main role of taking that time to, to give yourself a bit of buffer or, or space? Absolutely. Cause what you're doing is you're creating space between your reaction to what's happening around you. And just as you said, you were able to recognize, okay, so I'm feeling really angry. So then when you have that awareness, because you can't be calm and anxious at the same time. Mm. So it's only when we're in our rational mind that we're able to make informed decisions because we're, we all fall prey to our irrational mind. Those are the runaway thoughts. Those are automatic reactions. And this could be, you know, very, very deep psychological stuff that, that's based on core beliefs we have from, from childhood that are, could possibly very well be unconscious, but they're so automatic. So it's only through, again, doing things differently and creating that space between yourself and your anxious or your depressed or your angry reaction that you have the presence of mind to do, to do differently. Mm. When you encourage people who are pretty set against practicing mindfulness and you encourage them gently in your your way to, to start these practices, be them very small or, you know, a meditation or whatever it might be. What, what kind of results do you see for people who, who stick with it and who over time, I guess, see the benefit of it? What are the results that people, you know, discover? 
I think the people who really take it in and are willing to trust me and they're willing to believe that things could be different, it, it's because they, they actually have a system in place now. Mm-hmm. where they're not coming into therapy and saying, oh my gosh, so this is what happened. And then I thought to myself, how did I end up here again? So again, it, mm. it's giving them a tool that they can practice anywhere because it doesn't matter if you're sitting in traffic or if you are waiting in the wings to give a presentation, you can take slow, deep breaths, even if you just have five seconds. Mm. And so the beautiful thing is it's location independent and I encourage people to be aware of, of their triggers and to frequently take breaks as needed, even if they have to be scheduled breaks. Because, you know, when I talk to clients and people don't like the homework word, it, you know, makes us feel like we're back in fourth grade. <laughs> and I went to a, I went to a workshop and the presenter said, oh, you should call them personal development assignments. But that just seems like a tongue twister yeah. <laughs> to me. But I do, you know, I will, you know, when, when I wrap up session and, you know, so, some clients are very, very active and they take notes and they're like, great. So, you know, what can, what, what's an adjunct resource, which of course I love because it's, it's not, you know, whether you go to therapy or whether you're trying to better yourself through personal development or taking an online course, it is about practice, intentional practice each and every day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, there, there's no magic potion. There's no silver bullet. It really just comes down to making time day in and day out to, again, be aware to take brain breaks when you find yourself getting physically aroused and uncomfortable, reframing those thoughts and then choosing wisely your actions. And then I think when people start to see that their behaviors are more in line of with their value system. They see that their relationships are improving. Their stress levels are reduced. That's when the real breakthroughs come in. So they think, okay, so now I'm really seeing the results outside because when we're sitting in therapy, it's a very sacred space. It's you and another person or a couple other people, if you're seeing couples or if you're seeing a family and it's very quiet and calm and people feel supported, the problem is when they leave that environment and they go back to the triggering situation that if they're not, again, using the the M word, if they're not mindful, they're probably going to default to the same types of reactions and behaviors that brought them to therapy in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's very true because so often people will say to me, I mean, sitting in meditating or sitting in deep breathing doesn't change anything. Uh, And the advice I've always heard from people and that I've experienced myself is that it doesn't necessarily change anything in that moment, but it's everything else that it changes over time. You know, it's those 10 second breaks add up to give you that white space in your mind that allows you to draw conclusions and realize, you know, connections between thoughts and behaviors and see that if you give yourself that extra 10 seconds of deep breathing, then your behavior is slightly different. And as you start to, to piece those things together, that's when you start to, to see a big change. Like I didn't sit down and take 10 deep breaths and my life changed, you know, <laughs> like I would have felt like nothing really changed after that other than the fact that I maybe didn't shout when I thought I was going to shout. Uh, but it's, it's kind of putting those moments together day in and day out that does make a big shift. And I'm really glad that you said that um, because I also think that when we're sitting talking to someone rationally about it, be it a therapist or someone else, 
it's it's um, I guess easy to to see things the way that you're talking about them, but when we're back in our home situation or our work situation and we find the old triggers in our faces again, it's it's not always as easy to keep that rational uh, idea of you know the way we should be choosing to behave uh, at the forefront of our mind. So yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that. I, I want to stress that even though the steps to you know calming down your central nervous system are basically the same. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy because there are certainly mm-hmm. people who are in very volatile situations or traumatic situations. But just as you said, with your own example, taking t- 10 deep breaths did not make your problems go away, but it gave you an option. So sometimes the reality is the situation is not going to change. Uh, the problems in your life might keep coming, mm-hmm. but your ability to cope with them mm-hmm. will change. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a really important point, actually, isn't it? Because it's not going to fix everything necessarily. It's not going to make your job wonderful or your relationship solid if it wasn't solid yesterday. But it it changes your ability to cope with it and see your options to cope with it as well. And it also instills confidence that you do have control over your mind, you have control over your body, you have control over your life. That's massive, actually, for me. Uh, and I can only obviously speak about my experiences, but for me, that's been the biggest shift in the way I live day to day is a shift in confidence. And it's not so much external confidence, but internal confidence, the ability to deal with anxiety and the ability to deal with anger or frustration in a way that isn't destructive like it used to be. Um, that's, yeah, that's an enormous benefit for me that I probably hadn't articulated before. Hmm. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. And I, I'm in the same boat too. I, I definitely learned every life lesson the hard way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned this word a couple of times in our conversation so far, boredom. How important do you think it is for us to be bored sometimes? I think boredom is necessary because it is based in reality. And I think that it can also teach us to just be okay with not being entertained. And it also reinforces the importance of being Mm self-sufficient and being able to amuse yourself or not feel scared by boredom. I Mm. I guess when when I hear bored, I, I, I think of it maybe in a different context because oftentimes if I'm working with young clients and let's say, they're not doing well in school. And I'll, I'll mention something about math class and they'll say, oh, well, it's just really boring. Yeah. Well, oftentimes it doesn't mean that it's boring. It means they don't understand. But I think when we're talking about adults, again, it's that, that discomfort with time with, okay, so nothing's happening why isn't anything happening? I should be doing something or this person should be more interesting or this life event, this vacation should be interesting. Why am I bored? And it's a stimulation thing, isn't it really? I mean, do you think that we're just so used to being on all the time that nothingness or quietness or slowness or stillness is it's just so counter to the way we live the majority of our days. And, and that's why we, we attribute it to being boring or being bored. Absolutely. Because there's certainly people 
myself included, I love to be alone. I am rarely bored. Mm-hmm. And I've always, in fact, I, I, I prefer to be alone a lot more than is probably healthy. <laughs> but um, so I feel like my mind has always been interesting. It's not always been the most mentally healthy place to be. I can certainly attest to that. But I, I think that it, there's a skill to being okay with being alone and being bored and not feeling like I have to be doing something productive or doing something at all, or that this person has to be entertaining me or making me feel better or mm. making me feel a part of something and I'm not having fun right now. So I think that's when it can be detrimental. Mm. It's an entitlement and, and, too, isn't it? Oh, I was, I'm so glad you said that because I didn't want to come off as that kind of therapist, but absolutely <laughs> it is. It is, um, absolutely can be perceived as a sense of entitlement that this, this situation is not good enough for me, or this person is not dynamic enough for me. So mm. oftentimes that speaks more to the person who is saying that, that they're not feeling an inner sort of dynamicism, if that's even a word. <laughs> They're not feeling very dynamic inside is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, and I think um, without sounding judgmental either, because I can absolutely point the finger at myself equally, ego is tied up in all of this as well, isn't it? Absolutely. And I was going to say this, but because we're on the subject, I was also, I kind of held back a little bit. But I think that another positive about mindfulness, about being able to sit in silence, is that if there's nothing going on, at the very, very least, you can be grateful for what's going right in your life. You can be grateful for what you do have. Mm -hmm. And so you can really use this as an opportunity to reflect on the greater good. And, And that's one thing that I had recently posted on my Facebook page. I'm going to just scroll up here for the title. It was from Time Magazine, and the title is How We Ruined Mindfulness. And so one of the the points that I thought was very profound was that there is a prominent French Buddhist monk, and he's one of the world's most famous mindfulness experts. And his claim about mindfulness and how we've basically sullied it mm. is that it's become me, me, me. It's a mindfulness that might be good for me, but it doesn't necessarily you know, make me a good person. And so he believes that we've lost the ancient Buddhist tradition which provides that ethical framework that integrates concepts like compassion Mm -hmm. and empathy and caring. This is something that I've struggled with increasingly over the past few months is that so much of what I read about mindfulness is self-indulgent. And I say, I don't say that lightly because it has absolutely, it saved my life. Uh, It saved my sanity, being able to pay attention and, and live mindfully. But I feel like it's been commoditized to a point now where it is it is so self-centered in a lot of ways, not all ways. And I think you're right. It's because it's lacking the flip side of it. It's just being mindful for the sake of self-improvement rather than self-improvement for the sake of greater humanity. You know, we can, if we look after ourselves in this way, we can then be better, more giving, generous members of the community. But I feel like that side of the conversation is lacking and it's just very much Absolutely. about, yeah, it's very much about self. And that's a really fine line to, to, 
to tread, I guess. And I, I feel funny about saying it, but I actually believe it's, it's lacking that, that side of things is lacking. We're not just practicing. Well, I'm just not practicing mindfulness in order to be a mindful person and have some kind of moral high ground because of it. You, you practice mindfulness so that you can become a, a better, more wholehearted human being who can then turn around and do more and, and be more and love more. And, and, you know, yeah, I, I find that lacking. And I think that that probably happens when, when a movement or an idea hits the mainstream. You know, I think the subtlety or the nuance yes. of it gets stripped out by mainstream media, you know, uh, and it just it's the the kind of bare bones top five tips to be to becoming mindful kind of version of mindfulness. And, and that whole other side gets left, you know, to the left left behind because it's not sexy or it doesn't make a good headline. You're right. And, and also I think that, um, this is kind of going off on a bit of a segue, but when I first start counseling with someone and this, this is even when I get that first phone call when someone wants, or they're inquiring about my services. So I'm, I'm always on the lookout. Like, is this what, what's the feeling I get from this person or, you know, can I serve this person? And so when I am in session with someone, I, I often pay a lot of attention to the first session. How do I feel with this person? Because I'm, I'm always looking ahead. I'm always looking for larger themes. And so I can honestly say that the people that have a good attitude, the people that have good social skills, and that's just not minding their P's and Q's and saying please and thank you. But, but that's also, you know, having some sense even in, in the midst of their pain, because usually by the time people finally do make an appointment, they're, they're pretty, hijacked, their minds are pretty hijacked by stress and anxiety or bad events or whatnot. But even in the midst of all that, if they can still have some sense of, but you know, Hey, there's, you know, this going on in the world. Mm. And so my situation certainly doesn't, you know, compare to that or it pales in comparison. So I, not that people should be apologizing, but I'm always looking for that piece. And so I, I can honestly say that if, if I look back to all my years in the therapy room, the people that get off the couch quickest are the ones that do have a sense of compassion and of empathy and of caring and not just, you know, about themselves or their inner circle, but about the greater good as well. That's really, really interesting. And I think there's a tension there with this, even the broader conversation of mindfulness. You know, I've had more than one person say, well, what you're helping people with or what you're talking about are first world problems. And they're right. You know, they are. But I think there's a difference between being aware of the fact that the, these problems pale in comparison to the problems of someone who was born in Syria, for example. You know, it's 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 kind of treading that line between absolutely let's like let's deal with this, let's come up with strategies to stop these being your problems, but also keep in mind that you know it's it's relative, <laughs> and I find that a really difficult line to to walk. So it's interesting to hear you say that. The people who are aware of that but are still being proactive in in seeing a therapist, in helping themselves to come up with these strategies are the ones who, as you say, get off the couch first, typically. Right. Well, they're willing to take responsibility for their Mm. actions. And then they're also recognizing that, you know, hey, I do have a part in this. And 
That's also key as well, because I think as a psychotherapist too, and I'm trained as a social worker, so I'm always looking at, you know, social justice. I, I always say I, you know, it's, I've, I've counseled people from, you know, every end of the financial spectrum of the racial spectrum. And my heart will always be with the black and the brown kids. Cause that's where I started as, mm-hmm. as, as a young social worker. And so I, I think also I just tend to gel more with those people. So, you know, I think they probably motivate me to maybe work harder in session as well. So I think that there's there's also a rebound effect too, that, you know, when people are trying to improve themselves, that they're truly coming about it from a, a place of, of wanting to change and wanting to understand, having that curiosity of, so why do I continually end up in these same relationships, even though I vow not to do that, that shows a sense of maturity and also of psychological evolvement. And and again, a sense that what I do is going to affect other people. This is people in the workplace. This is my family. This is the barista at Starbucks. This is people at my child's school. And so it's just nice to see when people want to be healthier mentally. It's, it's, um, I know that there's, you know, so many different cliches and whatnot, but I I guess it comes down to attitude really is everything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Can people who maybe have fallen into the behavioral patterns of not having a great attitude or not taking responsibility for their own choices all the time, can, can they change? And if so, what can they start to do to, to shift, to make that change kind of start to come about? Well, anybody can change if they really, really want to. Now, for some people, and especially if, if, for example, if, if they've had a wretched childhood and there wasn't at least one stable caretaker that was attuned to their needs, it's going to be a lot harder because mm. they don't understand empathy. They don't have empathy for themselves. They don't They have trouble taking in nurturance. So even, for example, being in therapy sometimes can be very challenging because they're not going to want to take in because it's in a sense, it's nourishment. Mm. And so there's this, this resistance. And of course, it makes sense given their situation. But I think that obviously the first step in changing is recognizing that or, or at least creating distance between, you know, what's happened to you or how people have wronged you or how life has wronged you and having the sense that, Hey, things could be different in my life. And that's the beauty of at least making that step to come to therapy, because I've had some very challenging clients and sometimes if they get frustrated in session and say, well, I knew this wasn't going to help me. Nothing helps me. I always default to, but on some small level, there's some sliver of hope that things could be different because you wouldn't come here. You wouldn't be paying money. You wouldn't be spending your time and your energy if you didn't have faith that something could be different. So to answer your question, Brooke, yes, people can change, but it it's, it's just going to require a lot more work on, on their part, um, to undo a lot of their behavioral patterns, their thought patterns. And again, I hate to sound like a broken record, but it comes down to mindfulness, to paying attention, to being aware, because you can't change something that you don't understand. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I'm sorry. That was a really kind of a curveball question that I tossed at you. <laughs> Thank you for answering it. <laughs> As I asked it, I thought, oh, look, I'm really sorry, Linda. <laughs> um, no, Don't apologize. I, I think that that is really helpful for people listening because I do hear from a lot of people who understand that someone that they love would benefit from these changes, but they just don't understand how to, to begin that conversation. And I think for you to, to have offered that insight is really helpful uh, into why it might be such a, a challenge to overcome, you know, their, their thought patterns or their the behavioral patterns. So thank you for, for answering it, even though it was a bit of a, a tricky one. Uh, and thank you for your time and your insight. I mean, this was this is incredibly insightful. I've just I feel like I've learned so much listening to you today. And um, thank you for for sharing so honestly and openly. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this is such a wonderful project you have going, and I'm I'm just always happy when someone reaches out and asks me to talk about mental health. And and thank you so much, Brooke. I really appreciate it. No, thank you, Linda. Mm-hmm.